0: about owning uh, the church's special task, uh, owning the church's uh, special role, uh, owning the church's special partnerships that we get to have. And I have been excited to be able to share with you uh, through 3rd John for a couple of reasons. One is uh, that 3rd John is the very first book that I ever did an inductive Bible study with. And uh, it was uh, at Liberty University uh, with Dr. Fink. And we went through Third John for a whole semester. So if you think that six weeks is long for uh, 15 verses, uh, try a whole semester in which we looked at it from every angle possible. And here was some joy. I found... Uh, my old notes in order to kind of help me with this sermon is just what I was thinking at 20, 21 years old where for the first time I got to study God's word and find it come alive to me. Uh, I thought that class was scary and intimidating. I thought I'd never want to see Third John again. Uh, after that, I probably hadn't memorized, uh, but just a joy to be able to see God's word. Uh, Second, I think God's timing has just been fantastic for our church uh, as some of our uh, missionaries have been able to come stateside and we've been able to kind of work some of these sermons out already in real life on life situations. And so I was filled with joy uh, all the way until my mom came here. My mom and dad visited about two weeks ago, right before we left on vacation, and uh, you need to know something. My mom has always been a huge uh, supporter. She's always been in my corner. Uh, My parents actually download the sermons. I know it has to be a mom thing, and they listen uh, on their way to work. Now, you would think that would put them to sleep. You think that might give them road rage, Uh, but they will call me sometimes and say, hey, we just heard that. That was really challenging, but I'll have to admit I wasn't getting any of those phone calls when we were going through 3 John. They liked Ezra. They never thought about that before. Philemon and forgiveness, they were considering those things. The Lord's Prayer. They even had a little poster on their fridge at home. So when they come and they visit two weeks ago and they say, what what are you preaching on? It's Children's Sunday. The kids have to be in the service the whole time. What are you preaching on? I really expected my mom to show interest. So I said, missions. She goes, oh, whenever my pastor talks about missions, I just kind of tune out. End of conversation. Over. Alright. So so since then I decided to do a little bit of research and to ask other people, has this been relevant? Do we understand why we're doing this? Are, are you engaged? And I kind of find out my mom's not the only one. <laughs> there are uh quite a few uh that would say uh that thinking about missions just kind of uh seems depersonalized. I've never been, it's out there, out of sight, out of mind. Very few have the courage to say it, but I think the impression I've got is it seems largely irrelevant to what I'm going through in my life. And so maybe owning as a word that we've used in every single sermon title, go back and look at those, might be a little bit of an overreach because if we see it irrelevant. Maybe we're sympathetic, maybe we're concerned, but owning Maybe the prevailing question now is, why should we get involved in missions? Why be involved? That seems to be the question I'm hearing a lot. And so instead of picturing the church as owning missions, maybe we can have a different picture. Picture this morning that you come here to Faith Community Bible Church on a Sunday morning, and instead of seeing this beautiful building, you find out that last night, due to the beeping, this building burnt down not here, you didn't get the emails, it didn't get sent out, what would your response be if you showed up and this building was smoldering on the ground? The church lives on. Church lives on. What would your response be? Maybe a better question would be, what would our response be? I know something of this church, uh, being able to serve here for 12 years, and I know that if we saw our building burn to the ground, there would be a group sense of ownership, I think people would say, we have to do something. It's our church, it's our crisis, it's our responsibility. No one else is going to own this. we got to get to work. And I think that there would be people that would kind of revamp their priorities. There would be people that would maneuver their schedules around, take vacation time to come. there to be people that maybe aren't even that involved beyond the Sunday morning that would show up all of a sudden with different skills or talents that we didn't even know they existed. They have planning skills or budgeting skills or finance skills or building skills, managing, helping. And maybe they'd even find out that their role and the part that they played really became meaningful to them. Fast forward five years, the church is built, and we'd look back on that, crisis and we would actually say that was one of the best things that ever happened to this church we came together we had a sense of ownership a shared story so if someone asks us why go to all the trouble of taking vacation time and serving and working for a church many of us would probably say we had to we got inspired uh, we we got motivated and there's people that kind of mobilize us into different tasks because people invest in what they own we owned it And so we invested. I think the greater question for us is this. What is a greater crisis? A church building burning to the ground or 6,000 people that are unreached without access to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Picture it in those terms and think about, oh wow, can I I own it then? You say, Joshua, doing a building project is a lot more tangible. I I understand kind of how to go from point A to point B. Owning the task of reaching the world just sounds kind of unreachable. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And that's where we find 3 John to be very helpful to us because John the Apostle is writing to his friend Gaius, who loves the church, who wants to bless the nations. And Gaius is someone who very simply just promotes the gospel where he's at. He doesn't go, but he promotes the gospel where he's at. And that's perhaps the best kept secret in the church, perhaps in the Bible. The Bible has a whole list of activities that we can do to promote the gospel, to promote Jesus, to draw others, to hear him. And so I hope that we'll see this morning kind of four broad categories that will inspire you to to see everything that you do in this life as a way to win people to Christ. Let's go ahead and hear again for the last time, 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Kind of four broad categories for us to think through on how we can promote the gospel, even if we are not the ones who are proclaiming the gospel to unreached Hebrew groups. How can we still promote it by loving the church and blessing the nations? First, all of us can walk in the truth. In verses one through four, we see John talking about Gaius who is walking in the truth. Gaius was someone who took trouble for the gospel. You see, Gaius was committed to walking in the truth, and because he was committed to walking in the truth, he actually took trouble for the truth from Diotrephes. There was conflict in the church, all because Gaius says, I'm going to live the truth. I'm going to live according to the truth. I'm going to make sure that what I, how I walk is matching how I talk. Before we kind of forget the obvious here, walking in the truth implies that we know the truth. No one accidentally stumbles upon the path to truth and says, I'm going to stick on it and stay on it without knowing what that truth is. Remember, the opposite of truth is a lie. And no one just walks in the path of truth when our adversary, the devil, is called the father of lies. He's deceitful, a liar. And so it takes discipline, it takes self-control, it takes awareness to say, I'm going to walk in the truth. And walking in the truth, it also implies what? That that we're growing, that we're not just standing still. It implies movement. So Peter tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gaius was someone who lived out what he was taught, the good doctrine that he was taught, and he grew in it. Which means that what you come to know when you're first saved isn't where you should stop. You should continue to make progress in your faith. Paul tells Timothy, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. It, it should be evident that we are growing in the Lord. And it is because Gaius is walking in the truth that 3 John tells us that the brothers came and they testified of Gaius' walking in the truth to John, which makes John say, Gaius, I have such joy to see that you're walking in it. So his testimony was so public that others came, said, hey, there's a good word about this guy. It made John say, you are increasing my joy, but ultimately it's going to make Jesus say what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. We have to ask ourselves, even though we know that verse, faithful to what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Faithful to what? Faithful to the truth, right? This same guy who wrote 3 John is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. And he describes Jesus as this. Jesus is full of grace and truth in John 1.14. Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus even testifies before skeptical Pilate in John 18.37. For this reason I've been born and for this reason I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so it begins, how do we all participate and promote the gospel? It begins with understanding what the gospel is. Paul summarized it in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we need to know the truth. We need to live it out. So what evidence is there in Gaius' life that he walked in the truth? If you were to go through 3 John and ask yourself that inductive Bible study question, how do you read the Bible? If you want to help with that, we'd love to help you in reading the Bible one-on-one, in a group, small groups, whatever. But what, is, what evidence is there that Gaius actually walked in the truth? Look with me at verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing. It is a full of faith thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your what? To your love. To your love before the church. What is the evidence that Gaius walked in the truth? That he showed love. We see truth in love. Love. In scripture, all the time and here's one more example where the truth and love work out they told the church about his love it was a work of faith and even though he's committed to the truth it doesn't make him an egghead it doesn't make him a theologian you have to use the truth and love not to wound but to build up and he takes trouble for the gospel by loving you wouldn't expect that. You wouldn't even expect that he'd take trouble for the gospel instead of a church, but he does. He takes trouble for the gospel because he loves those that are brothers, strangers as they are. 1 John three eighteen says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So all of us can be a part of promoting the gospel by walking in truth, which implies loving people for the truth. Number two, all of us can support the truth. All of us can support the truth. In verses 5 through 8, we see what Gaius has done to support the work. We support the truth by supporting those that are workers for the truth. These workers went out, verse uh, 7 says, for the sake of the name, and Gaius sends them out in a manner worthy of God. Here's a big picture principle for us that I hope we all catch If you want to go back and listen to the very first sermon, it's more in there, but here it is. Whether we are going out for the sake of the name or whether we are sending in a manner worthy of God, all of it is worship, right? All of it is worship. Our mission is fueled by our worship of the Lord. They went out for the sake of the name. That's why they're worshiping God. And they want other people to know who he is. But Gaius sends them out in a manner worthy of who this God is. Both the goers and the senders all are fueled by worship of who God is. It might look differently for us, but let's try to get practical. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to see that even though for Gaius this meant showing hospitality it might look something different for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's go to verse 31. In the ancient Near East, Gaius, he would have had to open up his home because there were no hotels back then, so very likely for the gospel to kind of get shared and to spread, you would actually have to open up your home. It was also There was no maps back then, per se, uh, and how to get from place to place, so it was customary for you to take your friend, your, your brother in the gospel, and to show him the path, and maybe to, to not just walk him out to his car, uh, but to actually show him where to go, to maybe send a letter to, to give him some money to offer support. But what does this look like for us? How practically can we support the gospel? I think this is just a good verse for us to think about everything. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Just ask yourself, that: Is what I'm doing right now glorifying God? Spending this money in this way, is that glorifying the Lord? Is going here glorifying the Lord? Is saying this glorifying the Lord? Paul says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He says there, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, church, Christ is the only one who gets to die for people's sins. You're not going to be able to imitate him like that. And most of us aren't going to be like Paul who go around the world preaching the gospel. But we can still imitate them. How? By having that kind of life that sees everything, everything we own, every skill that we have, every opportunity that we have, though it's different, as a tool to be used to direct glory to God and the salvation of our neighbors. God says that we are to support these people. ...in a manner worthy of God. I just want to ask you, church, what attitude... ...what concern, what ownership do you think... ...would measure up to saying, I am sending them out... ...in a manner worthy of God? Perhaps the answer is in a most famous line from a hymn we often sing... ...when I survey the wondrous cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine... ...that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul my life my all it is when we worship god like that whether we're going for the sake of the name or whether we're sending in a manner worthy that we see i can't begin to express my gratitude for what christ has done for me and so we do it out of worship so we all can walk in truth we can all support the truth Third, all of us can exemplify the truth. In 3 John 9 through 12, we have a contrast between two individuals. We have Diotrephes and Demetrius. Unfortunately, what we see here is that some take trouble for the gospel and some make trouble for the gospel. We have Diotrephes who speaks evil, he makes false accusations in verses 9 and 10 about the brothers. His testimony is like a pot of boiling water. Just kind of brimming over, stewing, burning those that he touches. He rejects John's leadership in verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. It is pride that leads him to these things. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes rejects people while Gaius welcomes people. And Gaius knows full well that it is hard to be involved in the mission of the church, to be externally minded when there are distractions within the church. And so John says, hey, Gaius, swivel your head. Stop looking at diatrophies. Swivel your head and find a better example in Demetrius. Look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does evil is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Church, we can promote the gospel through our godly behavior. You can promote it in walking in truth, you can promote it in supporting the truth, and you can promote it in how you live. Titus 2.10 says that we would adorn the doctrine of God. How do you adorn the doctrine of God? How do you make it look beautiful? By your very life. And so 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We can exemplify the truth. We can promote the truth by our corporate identity. The word you there is plural. You, corporate testimony, our church. So as we obey, it also is connected to missions. It's connected to promoting the truth by exemplifying it. And here's our challenge for us, church. Look for godly examples. Set a godly example. Pick your models carefully. I think who we put in leadership is a very, very important uh, concept as we see from verses 9 and 10. Knowing that who we put up before the church, who we look to, will guide us in a path. We want to make sure that we put people up that look like Demetrius, who has received a good testimony from everyone. Lastly, this is where I wanted to camp out. All of us can love for the truth. All of us can love for the truth. Verses 13 through 15 it seems like it's kind of a closing to the letter but it's one more way that John shows his love for people and his relationship with people in ministry. We're made to be a part of the family. He so says, I have much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. We don't know why John is not going to write anymore. We already know that he's written, and Diotrephes didn't respect it, so maybe he says, you know what? My writing hasn't gotten us anywhere. It is time for a face-to-face meeting. So he says, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. Maybe that's why. We know that he wants to see him, and he says, I hope to see you soon. You guys know that I get choked up quite a bit. Ah, yeah, I have more tear ducts, I guess, than the average man, okay? And there are a couple things that get me choked up, but probably number two on the list is soldiers coming home from war. The Thanksgiving specials, you might as well just, you know, Amazon Prime me a whole crate of Kleenexes. I just have a hard time watching those family reunions when soldiers come home, everyone is hugging, everyone is kissing. That the fam, I, I get choked up. Even thinking, about I, I got choked up writing it. I'm gonna get choked up thinking about it. Um, the youth group went on a mission trip to Ground Zero, and if you haven't seen how they did that monument and kind of the cavity that the recess, it is just it's it, it's silencing. It's stunning. But we happen to see. Um, a gentleman that was getting the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, when he jumped on a grenade in Afghanistan for his buddies. The tapping thing, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) It helps. Um, Man, it was like, and, and to see him, you know, at 20 something year old, get the Congressional Medal of Honor, glass eye, hard to walk, scars on his face. Uh, and to see him make it home. I think that's the same idea as a church. We talked about, uh, in reference, some of our missionaries coming home. They're not coming back from a vacation from Cancun. They're coming back from war, right? And so when we welcome them, the family who sees them and hugs them and kisses them, they realize that they were wondering how they were doing. They were aware of the potential loss And all of a sudden, they've been rescued. They're back home. And people uh, that are there uh, wouldn't trade that um, for all the gold in the world. And Gaius is in the mix of conflict. He is not having a church picnic. He is having a church conflict. And he's walking in the truth, and he's supporting the truth in the midst of difficulty. And I would argue that guys could say, I didn't expect this. I didn't expect that me learning the truth of the gospel, then me showing that love to other brothers and sisters who want to share that with other people who don't know Christ yet, that welcoming them into my home would put me in the crosshairs of conflict and crosshairs of the conflict of someone in the church. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't think I'd feel this bad for doing the right thing. You ever felt like that, being in ministry? And then John says this, Peace be you. I know these are like small words, but Gaius needed a blessing from God because he was in a place where there was very little precious peace. The church is getting ripped apart by this guy. They're refusing to welcome the brothers. The work is being stopped. And John says, peace be to you. And the last time John heard peace be to you was when he was a disciple locked in the upper room with other disciples and Christ comes in after his resurrection and what does he say? Peace be to you. And after he says, peace be to you, guess what he says? I'm gonna send you as I was sent. It is not until you get the peace of god that you can be sent by god to bring peace to others and john says i remember being locked in a panic room in conflict and christ came in and said peace for christians your troubles may be lasting but they will not be everlasting how do you get through difficulty in ministry gaius seemed to focus on the present and the eternal Don't dwell on the past. Don't worry about the future. Gaius, peace be to you now. Think about the eternal, what Christ is going to bring because of his death and resurrection. And then now I want you, the friends greet you, and greet the friends each by name. That's a pretty great greeting at the end. Why? Well, when we talk like this, there's three people involved. There's John, who's saying, greet There's Gaius, who is supposed to represent John, and then all these other friends. So there is kind of a a triangle of relationships here, in which John is expressing greeting, and it's going to come through Gaius to other people, and then he says, greet them each by what? By name. It's our goal to know our friends by name. But I think what's amazing here is that this is the only time in the New Testament where Christians are called friends. It might be picked up on by John 15 where Christ says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends because I'm going to share with you all that I know and you're going to be a part of this mission. And what I think is great about this is John is not just sending a greeting. I think by saying greet the friends and the friends greet you each by name. I think he's saying, hey, don't forget, we are in a bigger picture partnership than you realize. The truth will prevail. There are people like Diotrephes, that we will forget, that cause harm to the gospel. But there are other friends. And you know what's going to happen? When Gaius goes to the friends, he starts greeting them by name. He goes, hey, John said hello. Oh, yeah, what else did John say? Oh, John said he's coming. And when he's coming, he's going to deal with the atrophies. And we're going to get back on track. And we're going to start doing the truth. We're going to start loving more people for the gospel. And all of a sudden, Gaius goes from friend to friend to friend saying, hey, John, greet you. And guess what Gaius starts realizing? There's more people that want to walk in the truth, that want to support the truth, that want to exemplify the truth than just this one Diotrephes. So let's get back to work because the truth will prevail. Amen? Amen. So why do we get involved in missions? Why go to all the trouble? I think the biggest hindrance to all of that is our pride. It's the biggest hindrance. That's what the hindrance was for our who loves to put himself first. And what is it that's a pride for us? Maybe stop listening for this sermon for somebody else. Start listening for you. Where do we struggle with pride to be about missions? I think here's something else that I've heard a lot of. I love what we have going on here. There is so much to do here, right? Why do we need to think about There. The reason why even the fact that if you love what's going on here should motivate you for there is this. If you love what you have here, don't you want to share it so that ultimately it becomes what they have there? The church is the means and the aim of missions. We've been saying that all throughout this series. The church is the means. It is through the church that missions happens. But the end result is what? Other local congregations that get to experience the very things that you love. It might not look like this. They might not be sitting in rows like this. We might not have an organized time. It might go for three hours. We're going to break that today. All right? Uh, But all of those kinds of things is what you are longing for. So if you love what you have here, don't let that be part of your... I don't want to get engaged because I love it so much here. Let that actually be a motivation now to say, I want other people to have what I have. So take the selfishness out of it, and now make it a sharing to see that other people could have it. We're past time. I think us all felt that the service uh, had some extras to it. Let's have a moment of uh, silence. I, I like to end like that to think about what is God doing in your life and answering this question of, do I think missions is irrelevant Maybe you could spend time thinking about this. Praise God that Christ left his comfortable bubble to come and rescue you.